13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know you can hear me. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Several years ago, I interviewed an author named Lisa Dickey about her book, Bears in the Streets, Three Journeys Across a Changing Russia. A look into the daily life in Russia over a 20-year time period that documented and sought to dispel misconceptions that Russia was a cold and hard country where bears freely walked around on Russian streets. No, Lisa Dickey isn't our guest this week, but we will hear from someone else with connections to Russia who believes that there are some misconceptions he would like to clear up. I'm Clay Aiken. It's Thursday, September 10th. And this week, Politicon welcomes Carter Page, a man who some consider a martyr, others consider a pariah, and who considers himself an innocent American framed in an attempted coup against a president. Regardless of where one comes down on the question of whether or not Russia interfered in the American elections in 2016, and regardless of whether or not one believes President Trump's campaign colluded with Russia in any such attempt, Carter Page has a plausible argument that he was just caught up in a scandal that he was not a part of. And since the end of investigations into Russian interference, he remains one of the only Trump advisors to have been vindicated and cleared by both the Mueller report and federal courts. This week, he talks to us about his book, Abuse and Power, How an Innocent American Was Framed in an Attempted Coup Against the President. And he weighs in, for the first time, on whether or not he believes this president deserves a second term. Is Russia a threat to the United States? Have the current president's tactics towards Russia been appropriate and effective? Should we worry about further interference in the elections this November? And how the heck are we going to get along? You've had a rough go over the past few years um, yourself, which uh, uh, obviously... Well, well, you know, I, 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 I joke about that, and we can get into it, but I, you know... Basically, my life, you know, what people have dealt with over the course of the last uh, several months is like what I've been dealing with. You know, it feels like more consistently going back since, you know, the last presidential election. Just always kind of, you know, because I I was under a lot of pressure. And so, you know, with with a ton of death threats coming in, I was sort of. Yeah. Suffice to say, I, I, I've had my time quarantined on my own, you know, have going you, back some time. Have you felt the need to kind of stay hidden away during during all of this? I yep. mean, is it, it got it got yeah. bad enough that you felt not yep. safe yourself? Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, that's kind of part of this whole saga when you're asking for help from the FBI. And not only are they not helping you, but they're they're coming after you even more for for various retribution purposes and 
everyone thought I was crazy until this inspector general report eventually came out and showed that I was, you know, it was even worse than what I had, uh, I had been claiming. So you, pretty you, crazy. You didn't necessarily start out hoping to be involved in like presidential politics initially though, when you, when you went to, I mean, you, you went to the Naval Academy, you obviously went to school for international affairs, but did you ever intend to, did you ever intend to be a part of president, the political side of this at all? No, you know, it's, it's funny. And and that's, that's interesting way you frame it because I mean, the way, the way people are sort of insiders break it out is there's kind of three parts to political campaigns. One is politics. The other is sort of media relations. And the, and the third is policy, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of the more substantive down in the weeds stuff. And I was really the latter. I mean, that's kind of what I've been involved in for throughout most of my career. And then, you know, having worked in a number of think tanks, et cetera. So the political and the media side were, were never things that I would, had any interest in. But unfortunately, <laughs> some actors uh, wrote me into various things. So, right. Do you feel like... Right. Obviously, I want to make sure that people know you've got the you've, your book, Abuse and Power, How an Innocent American Was Framed in an attempt to, Attempted Coup Against the President um, is out. And we obviously want, I want to talk to you some about that. But I just I mean, I'm I'm always interested a little bit in the story before the story. So how you got involved in. Not necessarily President Trump's campaign specifically, but how you got involved in. Russian foreign policy and foreign policy in general. You went to school for you. You you got your um you got your PhD at a at University of London, yeah. Yes. Yeah. In in yeah. in foreign relations in international affairs is that what you wanted to do in Middle East Middle and Near East studies, uh, which was, I mean, it's sort of a regional studies approach, but it I mean it was really multidisciplinary. Where why that? Similarly, it's kind of political economy, right? You know, the political economy of Central Asia was. Uh, what interested really in you? Uh, what interested you in that region in general? I mean, why? It's a obviously Russia's a big deal, um, and and the Middle East is a big deal, but Central Asia, you're talking about a bunch of stands <laughs> that that aren't necessarily real big players on the foreign policy front, but they do have a lot of natural resources. Is that what got you drawn to that area? You know, frankly speaking, uh, I ended up, I was a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York when I got out of the Navy. And through, it was sort of one thing led to another. And me and another guy ended up starting a, uh, a, a research program related to Central Asia. Actually, more precisely, the Caspian Sea region, which is partially Central Asia, and Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan um, border the, uh, the Caspian Sea. But there's also Russia and uh, Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan. etc. Well, yeah. So you just sort of fell into that area, essentially. It was a, a project-based thing, and you just sort of fell in love with it. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, a lot is, you know, some of it, it sort of developed over time. And, uh, you know, one opportunity led to another. And actually, to be totally precise, the the, the fifth uh, country that borders the Caspian Sea is Iran. And so I, um, during my year at the Council on Foreign Relations, I did a number of trips to Tehran and throughout the country and um, and was part of some research projects related to that as well. And so, so you got you got um, a lot of expertise, especially in that area, um, and you got some expertise, obviously, in in Russia and not just foreign relations, but there was some business relations as well. I mean, kind of give folks a bit of a background in in how you ended up translating that experience and those research projects into your foreign policy expertise on Russia, because you were the, you were essentially, is it inaccurate to say that you were the Russia expert on, on the, for President Trump? Well, (laughs) that's another example of how things sometimes, um, you know, we, we have a, uh, a group that, um, of volunteers that got together and we were all, you know, a lot of us had a lot of experience and, you know, worldwide. And I mean, as a reality, I, uh, um, I actually, I did a lot related to uh, many countries, including China, Africa, Middle East, et cetera. But again, just driven by the storyline and the, uh, you know, well, I don't want to drive the, the storyline. I want to let you, I want to let you, yeah. you yeah. know, that's why I said, is it accurate well, if you were, you don't think you were yeah. the, some people, some people believed and assumed, I think the, the Senate intelligence report, I'll, I'm not going to use exact words because I don't have them, but you yeah. can tell me if yeah. they're accurate. They essentially said that Russia and may have believed that you had, that you were more involved than you were um, with the campaign. I mean, somehow there was a connection between Russia and you, and then you had a connection to the Trump campaign. And arguably, some people may have misinterpreted that. It certainly has, that misinterpretation certainly has put, given you quite the past three years. But, but how yeah. did that, how did that connection, how did those assumptions develop? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a fair point And, uh, but I, I think along the lines of what you're alluding to, sort of perception eventually becomes reality. And when my life got taken over by this entire scandal, uh, you know, the truth is Russia was much more than it, it ever had been in terms of where my attention is was focused, et cetera. And actually, in reality, in the last presidential election cycle, uh, I think where it did become sort of a constant theme is that when political operatives, uh, consultants to the DNC and the Democrats were reaching out to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, Washington Post, and giving these same uh, allegations, which turned out to be false, uh, than it did, you know, as a matter of uh, uh, as a matter of fact, become more, um, more, uh, a 
focused than it otherwise would have been if I were um, telling my story or being able to live my life as I had liked. But, you know, to your point on Senate Intelligence uh, Committee, um, as someone noted today, I think it was must have been some statement, I guess, from Marco Rubio, uh, where he said he's very proud of his committee. Um, and he says there's there's been no issues with uh, um, information sort of leaks and leaks of classified information. And unfortunately, the one initial conviction uh, in a in what a Russia related case was the quote unquote security director of Senator Rubio's committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee, who was leaking to. Him again, in a media context where he was leaking to his uh, then-girlfriend and uh, got a false statement charge and was uh, was convicted for a felony related to that. So it all, you know, there's a lot of... So, I mean, there's... So, so you will... You concede that there are issues, that there are bipartisan issues then, that, that Republicans are leaking and Democrats are leaking and that there generally seems to be it, it's not. It, do you think that it's a one-sided issue? Do you think both sides have a, a problem with keeping their mouth shut? Like, what, what, who, who are you mad at, Carter? Who are you mad at the most? <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not really mad at anyone. I, I just, I just want this situation to be resolved. Where, I mean, there's just been so much false information going back so many years that I'm just concerned about the, you know, the impact that it's had and the impact that it's continued to have. I mean, again, you know, like I'm describing and like I talk about in my book, there were things driving the narrative in the last presidential election cycle. And sure enough, now again today, there are, you know, these same phenomena are happening once again, where um, a lot of false impressions and sometimes, uh, you know, spin and various people with agendas end up driving a narrative that turns out to be pretty detached from reality but i'm I'm sure you can think of a lot of other examples well, well let's we we yeah. just got to talking and didn't i didn't give much context to folks who are listening just so i want to back up a bit there the the russia investigation the Mueller probe whatever uh, uh, the different arms um of the investigation into president trump's campaign and his uh, and his contacts with or connection to or potential or a, alleged um, collusion with Russia, uh, a lot of that has been, is traced back to or or was traced back by many to you specifically. And you were one of the first people who initially was accused of being a potential conduit between the Trump campaign and contacts in Russia. Um, for those people who are, who are, listening and unaware, um, FISA warrants were issued to surveil you um, before and during that campaign. And it has it has been discovered and, and pretty much validated by a lot of judges, both conservative-appointed and liberal-appointed judges, that those FISA warrants were not necessarily enacted, you may want to say legally, but 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 they weren't necessarily um, the proper procedures weren't followed in in issuing those FISA warrants. Have I summed that part up accurately? 
do you think, or is there something you want to uh, add or take away? Well, I, I think I think you 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 have it, uh, broadly speaking. But unfortunately, and this this is sort of one of my current projects in terms of trying to set the record straight. Is unfortunately, you know, the full story is not really completely understood right now. There are so many things in these range of ongoing uh, intelligence investigations, which there hasn't been full disclosure about. And that's what I've tried to do in terms of setting the record straight. So for example, I mean, I, I think what you're broadly referring to and in terms of the, uh, you know, the various court actions, the U.S. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court in Washington, uh, you know, they've, they've made some pretty damning statements about what has happened. But unfortunately, and a lot of that was driven by an Obama-appointed uh, U.S. Department of Justice Inspector General who came out last December with a 480-page massive report kind of talking about all of these uh, problems, as, as he refers to it, 17 errors and omissions. But unfortunately, I was essentially blocked from having any input into that, even though a lot of the same people who were actually involved in the crimes were the ones providing the testimony. So unfortunately, it's remained uh, quite a half story, and it's a uh, it's complicated, but really exciting when you you stop and think about it, and you know because it, it's sort of a real life spy thriller. And well, the but, reason uh, I the reason I wanted to yeah. the reason I wanted to frame it that way for folks who yeah. are listening is because I. I, I I think that part of part of the the discussion here can be had regardless of whether you fall on the side of Trump colluded with Russia, Trump didn't collude with Russia, Russia interfered, Russia didn't interfere. I think that the the interesting part of this story is sort of how just like the subtitle to your book is how I mean I'm going to use your words, I'm not making my own up, but how an innocent American was framed in an attempted coup against the president. I mean, that's a pretty incendiary uh, and and disruptive subtitle. But this is 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 in a, in a way a story of someone who probably didn't necessarily intend to get into, um, like you said, the political part of this, but instead involved themselves in the policy part of it, and then sort of did get wrapped up into a um, into a, a political storm. And and I'm not passing judgment on anyone or either side. I just, I'm trying to frame the story in that way because I wonder if you ever have moments where you think, God, I wish I had never gotten involved with the campaign at all. Do you? Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I, I, I skipped, you, you reminded me of a point you raised earlier, Clay, that I, I should have, uh, I, I'll, there's a lot of moving parts and I, I skipped over one part in terms of, you know, bad actors on both, both sides. Let me, let me say a little bit more about that because although, Essentially, this whole uh, infamous dossier, which was put together by uh, by consultants uh, in and around Washington, uh, this group called Fusion GPS. Yes, they were they were paid by the DNC and uh, the Democrats in 2016. But and this is actually a quote from that Senate Intelligence report that you were just referring to, um, where. And it, where it says, in the fall of 2015, Fusion GPS 
signed a contract with Paul Singer and the Washington Free Beacon. Now, coincidentally, and I'm not sure how much of a coincidence it is, but that same time in the in the fall of 2015, um, you know, there was a a New, a New York Times article which I think says a lot, where Maggie Haberman, uh, the title of the article is that Paul Singer, influential billionaire, throws support to Marco Rubio for president. So again, it's it's a small world when the person who's at the center and is beginning this whole Russia madness in terms of hiring Fusion GPS, as we now know from this report that was just disclosed by uh, Senator Rubio's committee, uh, five years earlier, uh, you know, hit one of his biggest donors, if not the biggest donor, was the one starting this whole um, charade, unfortunately, or hired the group that uh, ended up, you know, bringing us down this crazy path. So, yes, I, I, I would actually agree with you that there are some people who have not been uh, too, you know, well, listen, you got it's not it's not just one side. I, I you I got a agree. bunch of axes to grind, and <laughs> I won't I won't try to take away your opportunity to grind them. <laughs> and people can certainly get your book and hear them ground all they want to in the book. But I want to be I, I want to I mean, the goal here with this podcast is how the heck are we going to get along? And and I know that it's 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 a little different. It's a little interesting having you on as a guest because you have some beef with some folks. And uh, typically with other guests, we try to say, well, you know, let's uh, uh, prevent ourselves from accusing such and such of this or such and such of that. So it's a little bit of a different dance for me to take today because, well, you've, you've gone through a lot and you have some people you're upset with. But do you think that, let me just think, do you think Marco Rubio or President Obama or Joe Biden should be in jail for surveilling you or for leaking information or for being involved in this? I guess I, I don't want to ask you to accuse someone of something, but the president has done it. The president has said that Joe Biden and and President Obama have should be arrested for allowing surveillance of you. Do you agree with that? Clay, you know, I, I actually, let me, let me side with you a little bit in terms of, you know, finding ways of getting along, if you will. I mean, to me, and, you know, again, those points that I just made, I was just reading from Maggie Haberman in the New York Times, who, I mean, these are just straight facts of how this, this all started. So it's not, uh, I wouldn't characterize it as grinding an ax. I'm just, uh, trying to fill out the stories to make sure people understand what actually happened. And I'm fully with you. I, I agree. I, I think, and, you know, I appreciate you framing it that, that way. And I think that's the most important thing in terms of, you know, finding ways that we can start uh, working together better in, in this country, as opposed to these constant confrontations. But I think as a starting point to that, it could be, very helpful to actually have a, uh, you know, the basic information. And I, I look, I think, again, going back to that, that same framework of the way someone had once portrayed the, the political realm to me of, you know, the policy side, the political side and the media side of campaigns. 
and again, they're they're all interrelated. But I think uh, to me, what's in the end of the day probably the most interesting and the most substantive is the policy side. And I think, unfortunately, what what has happened, and exactly to your point, I think you know it's important that we we find ways of um, interacting better. And I, I, the part of the problem is, uh, I think if we're always pointing the finger at the other person or the other group, then, you know, we really lose that opportunity. And so I, I, I completely hear what you, what, where you're going with that. And I, I fully agree. And I, I think there's, uh, there's a lot that should be done, but, you know, just to kind of put a, I'm not trying to muffle on. you. I want you to say what you. No, no, I want you to no, say no. how you feel. But but no no. But, I, I actually I, I appreciate it. And I I think to me that's actually more important because if we're not having substantive policy debates, if everyone let's kind of look at it from the opposite perspective, you know, when people are always uh, accusing the president and or his supporters of being Russian agents, you know, whether it's calling, you know, the uh, Senate Majority Leader Moscow Mitch or something, you know, I mean, that there is hyperbole there for sure. I'll agree with that. Yeah, yeah, there is. And I think, but is, uh, yeah, it it prevents, it prevents serious discussion, I think. But is there not, is, would you argue that, would you argue that there is no reason to be concerned about Russia? In the United States, I mean, I, I I will agree with you that Moscow Mitch and those types of um, hyperbolic accusations um, uh, in bed with Russia, Moscow Mitch, Biden uh, is is the pawn of the Ukraine or 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 China. All of that stuff is just hyperbole. But is there no concern in your mind? I mean, you you know a lot about what's going on in Russia. You've got connections and contacts uh, in in that country. Do you think that there's no reason to be concerned at all in the U.S.? Is that fair? Or should we, should we honestly look at some of these um, accusations of Russia interfering in the United States political process and look at them with a serious eye? I, I think it's a fair question, and I, and I agree with you, right? Uh, what do you agree with? Yeah. I can with the fact that well, the question's fair, or the fact that they're interfering. No, no, no. no it's well. I think it's it's fair to ask the question, and unfortunately, well, I'm I mean, asking is, you. I'm not asking yeah. you to ask it. I'm asking you yeah. to answer it. Well, no, you you framed it as does it make sense to you know okay, investigate these issues, think of these issues, and I, I, you know, I don't see any problem with that. What I do see a problem with is this ad hominem rhetoric, which becomes so toxic that anyone who even uh, voices any opinion, which is less than complete damnation of Russia uh-huh. and Moscow. Okay, I'll agree with that. And President Putin nonstop. Um, you know, anyone who's sort of painted into that corner, I think is, is un fortunate in it. I'll agree with uh, that. And you won't get that. You won't get that from me, but I'll say, and I, and I do my best to not pretend that I'm not biased. I'm openly biased (laughs) Um, and I own it. But to me, I do find myself concerned with, uh, with the same things that, that Richard Burr, who is not in my political party, 
Um, but he himself has mentioned have concerned him uh, when he was chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee that there have been moves by Russia to interfere with presidential elections, that there were there was malware placed inside of certain ballot machines in parts of Florida uh, by Russia. That's that's what I am concerned about. You won't hear from me. You won't hear from me that you are a Russian agent if you disagree with me, but I will disagree with you. But I am curious. Do you not find those things specifically to be concerning? Do you think they're not a threat? Do you think Russia is not a threat and doesn't care about how um, what's going on over here in the United States? Or do you think they're involving themselves in ways they shouldn't? I, I would not say that they're not a threat, but all I would say, on the other so, hand, is okay. there, there are ways of dealing with that threat that are a lot smarter and a lot more effective than constantly throwing stones at, uh, at our quote-unquote adversary nonstop. And let me tell you something. And well, how is, would you do it then? I mean, well, you're, you're a policy expert, yeah. so I would love, yeah. how, would you, how would you approach it? Because those things, so, so we have agreed here. We've found a place yeah. that we can agree yeah. that there is a threat. And, and we might even agree that constantly throwing stones isn't the way to solve it. We have certainly used carrots and sticks in other parts of the world successfully. Yeah. How would you address those types of threats from, from Russia right now? I think a lot of it comes down to having a constructive dialogue, right? And this, again, this is, you know, uh, I don't know if you have kids, but if you're constantly telling your, um, you know, a member of your family, they're bad, bad, bad all the time, you know, sooner or later, it doesn't really help the relationship. <laughs> I, do, I, I do have, I do have a child and I know that that doesn't work. And I also have yeah. parents, a mother who, and, and uncles who vote for Donald Trump. And I also uh-huh. know that that telling them that that's not good is not going to work. So I'm with you. Yeah. I agree that it doesn't, but I don't necessarily feel like my mother or my son or my uncle are adversaries. So I get the I get the the whole philosophy, the psychological philosophy of not telling people they're wrong because I think politically in the US we do that way too much. We say people are wrong and once you tell them they're wrong they stop listening. But does that work on a foreign policy level when you're talking about a country that has that that is trying to do potentially do harm to our democratic system is talking and and trying to get them to see the error of their ways and saying please don't is that going to work i think let me just say i think in many instances the threat has been overstated and i think by tempering it so much so, somewhat that it can be productive. And let, let me just say, this This is now speaking from firsthand experience. I right, not, so tell me where it's been overstated, please yeah. do. Well, I have not stepped foot in Russia since I was under uh, agent of a foreign power surveillance by right. the CIA, FBI, NSA, and all the U.S. intelligence agencies. But what I can tell you for sure is, look, Countries change. We have changed as a country, right? And well, I'll give you that. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I, I think there's there's always opportunity for negotiations, right? And 
what I can tell you from firsthand experience, primarily just speaking with scholars and average people on the street in uh, Moscow four years ago in 2016 when I went there, both in the summer during the before the election and in December right after the election, people are looking for new solutions. You know, they're not happy. I mean, we've the reality is our bad relationship. I mean, everything we're talking about now is the same thing people were talking about in the late 1940s uh, in terms of, you know, Russia, the threat, et cetera. And the question then becomes, how do you get out of that threat? How do you so you think Russia a, has changed for the better? I, 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 I'm not, I don't pass judgments like that, but I think there are ways, what I can tell you without question is there are certainly ways in which they could change for the better. And in many ways that they want to change for the better. The people are the president of Russia. <laughs> the people are Putin. Want to both. change for the better. I'm not saying want. I'm saying, you know, life is a negotiation, right? There's always room for negotiate. And What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly. And look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that. But I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. This Halloween, listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. Soundtracks available on Spotify or wherever you stream your music. But I mean, like, everybody's got a podcast these days. But what would I know? I'm Satan, for God's sakes. Don't even get me started. I knew they were going to kill him. Please ain't FBI. This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. This is the story about two guys from opposite sides of the street. A hustler blamed for robbing the most dangerous gangsters in the country. This is like issued a, a death warrant for me for something that I don't even know anything about. And the cop who tried to save his life. They thought he had robbed a deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. In 1970, Muhammad Ali triumphantly returned to the ring. At the hustler's party that followed, gangsters from around the country were robbed of a million dollars. This story from Atlanta, Georgia has been reported for 50 years, but now for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I like, I think it was Kennedy that had that quote, right? You know, Never negotiate in fear, never fear to negotiate. I mean, the reality is we've painted ourselves into a, a corner in many ways of, you know, it's all fear. And this goes back to the start of yeah, our but when you, when right? you, But when you see that people who are opponents of Vladimir Putin being poisoned, that stokes fear, don't you think? Does that, I mean, that doesn't say to me, changing for the better. <laughs> Does it say that to well, you? Look, 
again, no one's no one's perfect. And let me let me just say, <laughs> I will I will agree with you that that would be well, not perfect. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. When I am facing, when I was facing frequent, almost constant death threats, you know, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarities, right? And if whether you're well, murdered death threats, by death threats from a 400 pound person in their basement um, on Twitter, et cetera, is a little different than death threats from the president of your country, don't you think? I mean, listen, well, I've had death threats too, but I haven't had any from the president yet. <laughs> well, look, you know, when your life is put at risk, and I mean, even by the terrorism statutes, a threat is you know it's like it's like you're asking about you know are these things we should be concerned about um you know by law whether you actually blow up the building or threaten to blow up the building i mean by the u.s terrorism statutes those are equally illegal actions and unfortunately this mass hysteria which again goes goes back to the fear which has prevented any forward progress I mean, that's, that's a serious problem and it's something that needs to be addressed. And I think, you know, having a little bit more of an open mind and not, you know, constantly closing, closing doors. I mean, there, again, there's, there's good and bad ways of negotiation. And, right. But do you, you think, know, that I think those same sorts of, of, do you think that every country should be treated the same? Um, if, if, if we found that the president of Brazil had worked to poison or been involved in poisoning potentially someone who uh, was an opponent. Heck, we just saw Saudi Arabia and the problems there where Jamal Khashoggi killed by, um, by, uh, by folks um, who were connected potentially to uh, um, MBS in Saudi Arabia. If we found out that that was happening in a place like Brazil or in a place like Rwanda or in, in, in any, really any other country, wouldn't we get a little bit pissed at Boris Johnson if we found out he had done that and not necessarily expect to use a carrot and stick approach? Is there a reason that there seems to be a little bit more willingness to be patient with a country like Russia than there might be with some other country if they did similar things? Of course. I mean, everything, you know, you have to, uh, and, and this is part of the issue. It's, and it's exactly the same argument I was making a few minutes ago. You know, I, I think an absolutist philosophy is rarely effective or rarely, you know, a good way of going about a problem, right? So you know, it's you okay to, to be a little more lenient on some countries. I, I, I would suggest so, right? And, you know, I, I think, and there are ways of doing it. This, this goes back to, you know, negotiating with family members as well, right? To the extent that, uh, you know, there, there's different ways of having that conversation. Uh, unfortunately, when we as a country or various actors within our country always have on the front page uh, these often overworked or overstated uh, threat assessments of how bad certain situations are, you know, often that that can have a, a pretty negative impact. And it, it really does not leave open many positive alternatives. I mean, it becomes a pretty much a catch-22 for uh, for 
officials in Washington in terms of the possibilities. Again, this is not a call for appeasement in any way or any sort of weak need approach, but it is, you know, going in, it it is uh, a suggestion that it it can be helpful to have a bit more of an open mind and a a bit more of a uh, way of um, looking for a constructive dialogue, which in turn can then lead to forward progress in many instances. It's kind of interesting, though, to me, because, I mean, Russia's sort of one of the few places in the few areas of discussion or policy in in Washington, D.C., where there has been some pretty bipartisan agreement that they are not a friend or ally. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking of of Lindsey Graham, um, Marco Rubio, as you mentioned, Ben Sass, mm-hmm. uh, several Republicans who have said, you know, they're very concerned about the way we are, the way the United States is relating to Russia and the threats that Russia poses to the United States. It's one of the few areas of agreement between parties that Russia's not our buddy. So do, do you do you th- do you understand, I guess, why people might say, how funny that the one thing that Democrats and Republicans seem to kind of have a consensus on this particular president doesn't necessarily agree with them. Is that, do you well, see why me, that's let me, weird? Let me, let me agree with you, Clay, and also note another example where we had a similar situation where there was bipartisan support. And that was 19 years ago, or 20, uh, 18 years ago now, uh, in the lead up to the war in Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, there was consensus both on the left and the right True. that these guys are bad. And again, it's the same sort of situation, right? Where it's well, lack- in that situation, you had two parties and the president all agreeing um, that yes, that Iraq was correct. Bad. In in correct. this situation, you're talking about a a bipartisan support within within Congress, but the president being the one who's saying no, we're not we're not going to impose these particular sanctions or we're not going to impose this particular uh, aggression towards Russia. So you, so it sounds like you're saying that in this case, you feel like President Trump is the only person in D.C. who is actually approaching this the correct way. Is that, is that an yeah, accurate and, assessment? And, and look, I, I would agree with that characterization. And I would also say it is a symbol to me, of real leadership, right? I mean, it's easy. I mean, similar to the Iraq debacle, which cost our country 4,000 plus U.S. service members' lives, literally not billions of dollars, trillions of dollars in lost, um, you know, money wasted in this unfortunate war. And to me, it's a sign of, of true leadership. I mean, it's easy. Where did he get those thoughts yeah, from, do you think? I mean, because George Bush, or George W. Yeah. Bush, arguably was advised by you know, his, fa- his own father. He was certainly advised by Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. He had a lot of people advising him on his position towards Iraq. Where is Donald Trump getting his philosophy towards Russia? Because if he's not getting it from his own 
from from people in Congress on either side on either party, and he's not getting it arguably from uh, Dan Coats, who was director of national intelligence, who apparently has been has been open about his concerns that the president was not being aggressive enough towards Russia. I mean, he, where where's he getting this philosophy? Because it seems like he just came out of New York, moved to D.C., and already had what you are calling what you consider to be the one dude with the right answer. Like he's the one guy in America who thinks we should be easier on Russia and take a softer stance with them. And, and I just don't understand. I mean, I knew him before. And when we were doing apprentice, he sure didn't know much about Russia. So where to get this philosophy from? Well, let me, let me just, let me just to be put a fine point on it. I, let me be totally clear. I'm not saying a soft stance, right? I'm saying a more practical, approach and a little bit of an open mind. I mean, and I think if you look, you know, several of the steps he has taken over the course of this administration is, you know, have been pretty harsh in terms of, you know, additional steps that have been uh, contrary to Russia's interest. But, you know, there's there's an old saying, and you're, you're asking my question of where did I come up with this idea? And where, where is he? Uh, where do I think again? I, I, well, if I you gave no him the idea, then I definitely want to know where you yeah. got it from. But I'm wondering where he got it. <laughs> well, I, I think you know it's a pra- not to uh, use an old cliche, but I mean he's someone who has had a more practical, real world experience in terms of you know doing deals around the world and you know really understanding people as opposed to just being completely driven. I think one of the common denominators of the rest of the cast of characters that you're alluding to is, I mean, for the most part, these are individuals who have spent most of their career in, you know, the, as, as is per the vernacular per the wash in the Washington swamp. Right. Well, so Rex Tillerson, Rex Tillerson had not Rex Tillerson came from the same field of work that you had worked in too. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Oil and gas, and, well, and Rex Tillerson said, "I mean, I can't remember exactly his quote, but Rex Tillerson spared very few words in saying that he thought Trump was not doing the best he could do." <laughs> well, but let, let, let me kind of build upon. I mean, there's all sorts of challenges that everyone was dealing with during those very turbulent times in our country's history. When you're talking late 2016 and early 2017, and the the months that followed. But I think what's interesting, and you know, there was a lot of controversy. And I remember that time, I, I actually happened to be in Russia that week in uh, early December of 2016, you know, just a little over a month after the, uh, the 2016 election, when um, Rex Tillerson was was named, right. And one of the one of the big accomplishments of his career was doing some major energy deals between the U.S. and Russia, and actually, you know, the right he had and even sti- and even or, still, he doesn't think that, that that Trump was handling it right. I mean, you kind of no, make I, that I, point. You kind of make that argument had, for me, right? No, no, they 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 had other sort of issues, is, is my understanding. Again, I, I I've never been in a, a meeting with either of them, but you know, again, is there anything Trump's I, not doing right in foreign policy, in your opinion? You know, I, uh, it's, uh, I think 
it's important to push back on the consensus. And I think he has done a tremendous <laughs> You're struggling with this here, Carter. <laughs> you well, can't think I, of anything I, he's not doing right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I look at the big picture and I think overall he has done, you know, and, and I bear in mind, look, my, my vantage point, you know, when my life was essentially taken over by these continued controversies and when I'm still spend 12 plus hours a day, I mean, it's nice spending some time with you here, Clay, but I mean, most of my time is dealing with big legal battles, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not as, I'm not as, uh, uh, as as tuned into that, but uh, you know, I, I do understand. You know, to me, it's pretty. Just looking at the headlines and looking at some of the accomplishments he's had in terms of both Israel, UAE, that that recent deal, and uh, you know, ending the uh, being victorious in, in the war against ISIS, etc. I mean, there, there's a pretty long list of accomplishments. Are the legal and, battles and yeah, the stuff you, you're dealing with, or that is that why you haven't really been involved in it at all? Not not in the campaign, but I found it interesting as I was doing trying to research and make sure I was ready to talk to you. There's very little, if any, whatsoever from you in the public eye when it comes to this particular election and whether or not. Um, I assume you plan to vote for Donald Trump. If I'm wrong, tell me. But but. Do you still support him? You haven't really said much about his reelection and whether or not you think he's doing good, well enough to have an, another term. Well, this goes to the point of my book, Abuse and Power. I mean, I am seriously concerned about the problems and the election interference that happened the last time around uh, in the in the prior presidential election, and I I think just based on core accomplishments and based on things he's somehow managed to pull off despite having all these manufactured headwinds by his political adversaries, I think he's definitely earned uh, a, another four-year term uh, without question. You know, to, But you can't think I mean, of- it's, hard, it's hard enough to even survive in the midst of, you know, and I'm speaking from firsthand experience when you're, constantly being called a, a Russian agent, a Russian stooge, uh, a, you know, agent of a foreign power nonstop for years. I mean, to still be able to lead a country and, uh, you know, continue pushing That's a, forward. I've a, got to, I'm going to be a, honest a, with you. That is, yeah. that is a, obviously, as I've said before, I'll, my producers will drink, um, tip their glasses when I say I own my bias, but I'm going to say it again. Obviously, I do, yeah. and and I am uh, am yeah. not going to vote for Trump. But I got to say that is that's not the most ringing endorsement to say that you think he's done a good job, considering how tough it's been um, that he survived. I, 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 it, it, it is a strong in, in endorsement. I, I I'm just stating that as a base case. I, I think his accomplishments have been incredible. I think his platform and what you know, what he stands for at this stage. And uh, again, particularly from a foreign policy standpoint and from an economic standpoint, I think, you know, he's done an incredible job and there, there's uh, a lot more upside where that came from. And again, you know, they, they, and this comes back to my story as well. The, you know, if the government has full control over someone's life, similar to what I was subjected to, 
you know, it's a real problem. And I think relatively speaking, the, uh, you know, these are core principles of the respective parties, right? Where one is more strong central government power and the other is more power to the people and, you know, let people, uh, you know, more of a laissez-faire, let, let people live their lives as free individuals. Uh, and I, you know, having, having been through the gauntlet and having known firsthand the downside of having massive government forces come down upon you like a load of bricks, I, I, I definitely appreciate it. And I, I know for sure that, uh, you know, these are, these are things that people are, it's in their best interest to avoid, you know, over the, particularly over the longer um, term. Let me move on to our quick fire questions. We get, we asked folks uh, earlier in the week, told them that you would be on this week and asked them to send in their questions. You can do that. If you're listening, you can do that via Instagram or um, via Twitter at Politicon. Um, and, or you can send them, send us your questions via email podcasts at politicon.com. Um, these were specifically for you, Carter. Joyce from LA asks, should Snowden, Assange, and reality winner be pardoned? I'm, I'm open to consideration of those ideas. I certainly, uh, you know, I think there's, there's, um, there, and this is a recent, uh, ninth circuit decision that the activities which were uncovered in terms of the the snowden leaks i mean these are illegal things that were being done right so in that sense it's it's a positive but i'm 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 not i'm not well positioned again i think it's important similar to what we were debating it's better to have the full picture and i'm not i'm not fully versed on it but i'm i would certainly be open to consideration of those concepts um, Hannah from Richmond asks, is any agency or branch of government trustworthy? Uh, there, there's a great quote by Reagan, trust but verify, right? And I think what, what has been a challenge for the U.S. intelligence community is a lack of openness. And actually, this goes back to your the Snowden question as well, right? Because he is, he took pretty proactive steps and admit, uh, without question, broke the law related to that. But, you know, I think it's, it's important uh, to, to have trust, but it, trust is something you have to earn. And uh, unfortunately, through a lot of abuses, there, there are some major problems that uh, have not been fully addressed. And so I, I think it's, it's always good to have a healthy level of skepticism and ask the right questions. And it's, that's a great example of a good question. So appreciate it. Okay. Riley from New York. What's something Americans misunderstand about Russia? I, I think overall, that's a good summary question in conclusion of, of what we've been talking about. I think there are, countless misunderstandings. And I, I think, I mean, there, it's the old, uh, like the old sting song, do the Russians love their children too, right? I mean, it's, um, I think it's important to look at people as human beings and to constantly have a uh, closed-minded rhetoric is, is a serious problem. So I think 
it's important to understand and have a, a fuller, deeper picture of the country, their culture, their economy, and their people, which I think is uh, not not uh, well understood by by anyone. And I, you know, I would encourage uh, the the questioner to actually go visit over there because I think you you can well, learn me, a lot. Let me change. Let me change Riley's question. Sorry, Riley, because um, I want to change it a little bit because I. I agree with you. And I honestly think most Americans, or I would hope most Americans would agree with you that, that we should, we should have respect for the human beings who live in Russia and recognize that they love their children too. Yes. So let me change the question because I'm curious. What's something mm-hmm. Americans misunderstand about Vladimir Putin? Because there's a difference between saying Russia and talking about Russians versus talking about the Kremlin and talking about Putin. And I don't know that there are many, I don't encounter many people in this country who are afraid of Russians, the people. Um, But I do encounter quite a few folks as I speak who are very apprehensive about Vladimir Putin and his control over over that country and its government and its armed forces and its nuclear arsenal, et cetera. So let me ask you this. What's something Americans misunderstand about Vladimir Putin? I, I think, and let me let me be very clear and upfront about my where I'm. I lack knowledge. I, similar to uh, a lot of top leaders in the United States, I have actually never. Uh, I've never met Vladimir Putin at any time in my life. So you know, again, I think it's important to have a direct dialogue with individuals and keep an open mind. Until you actually have that kind of engagement. Yeah. Well, I'll let you, I'll, I'll say <laughs> trust, but verify on that Vladimir Putin issue. And I got to say some of the stuff yeah. that I've seen happening or seen, or some of the reports that I've heard at least, um, certainly give me pause and make me concerned that while we aren't, we shouldn't be afraid of Russians and the people of Russia, that, that perhaps there are some things going on with, Vladimir Putin and his leadership of that country that um and and that his leadership towards interfering with our country <laughs> that may um be cause for concern but well, I, let me, I gotta, you know let me, yeah, yeah let me let just push back a little bit because I think this goes back to what we talked about with Iraq right and this this is in the verification uh I I think and you know the prior question about you know trusting government agencies, et cetera. You know, not all the information, and I, I can say this without question from firsthand experience, not all the intelligence uh, is correct when it comes to these questions. So I think it's, uh, you know, it, it requires a, a deeper level of thought and less of a, uh, you know, jumping to conclusions, I would say. Because there's uh, there's a lot more that needs to be understood, and I think again, this is an example where engaging in a dialogue and on a number of levels, not just on a presidential level, but you know, even on a societal level, like we're talking about, you know, people to people, I think that can be important in terms of turning a corner so that the next seventy years for our respective countries does not match what we've seen over the last seventy seventy years, which is, you know. Uh, as as they say in uh, Doctor Strange, love toe to toe with the Ruskies, right? You know, nuclear 
on the brink of nuclear conflict. And you know, they, these are these are real significant potentially catastrophic risks that should be more thoughtfully and thoroughly addressed. Do you think Dan Coates has got any accurate is, has any validity to his um, his belief? Do you think uh, Vladimir Putin has anything on Trump? I can't imagine that that he does. You know, it, it uh, all all I know just based on the the most infamous source in terms of that uh, infamous steel dossier mm-hmm. that were paid for it. Yes, by both Democrats and. Republicans in terms of the initial work, at least with uh, Fusion GPS, I think there's uh, a lot. There are a lot of errors in the, everything that they wrote about me in that document is inaccurate. So why would they? Th- think, why yeah. would Dan Coates think that though? I mean, he's a senator for from Indiana. For he's been he's he's known international affairs for quite a while. Why would he? Why would he think that? Why would he even even joke about it? Why would he make the make the even if he was kidding? Why would he say that unless he thought that perhaps Trump was being was giving Putin what he wanted? It's a safe space. You know, it's it's consistent with the status quo uh, rhetoric, which has defined our country since after the Second World War. So it's a big, a big problem. And they, uh, it's something that, you know, it takes it takes a different approach and it, it takes a more open mind to uh, think through some potential new solutions, which I think is important. How the heck are we going to get along here in the U.S.? <laughs> well, I, I think this is this actually ties in well, right? I mean, I think you know, and it's the same type of problems in many ways. I think having having an open mind and will, being willing to engage in dialogue as opposed to immediately pointing fingers at the other side. I think that's absolutely essential in terms of um, turning the corner. And, you know, I think these same conflicts we've seen over the course of the last several months and, you know, throughout this, the 2020 cycle is exactly the same thing I've been calling for, for uh, many, many years. And particularly uh, even in, the the deep trials that I uh, I went through in this uh, this historic juncture that we we've we've gone through with the original Russia stories in, in the last presidential election. So I think it's it's important to come at things with a with an open mind. And I think even though people are are very much uh, taking a stance of um, you know constant confrontation. I think having a more open-minded and a more uh, willingness to engage, although risky in some ways, just based on the false rhetoric, it's absolutely essential if we're going to get to new solutions. Well, people can read about your story in Abuse and Power, How an Innocent American Was Framed in an Attempted Coup Against the President. Carter Page, thank you so much for getting along with us uh, today and um, for for sharing your story and your insights and your thoughts. Um, uh, We really appreciate that. You guys, if you're listening and you enjoyed the podcast, please like and rate and comment and subscribe and all that other stuff you do to podcasts. And we'll be back here next week for another episode of How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along? 13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel 
the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know you can hear me. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on.